Good morning, if you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 8 for our time this morning. Actually, we'll get a little bit into chapter 9, but we'll start in chapter 8, Nehemiah chapter 8. We are definitely going low-tech this morning, so uh, we uh, got to the building this morning and discovered that the computer will not turn on, the computer that's up here, so I know we all love having the songs up here, but we do have songbooks, and uh, I know that we all love having uh, the points for the PowerPoint so we can all fall asleep and then wake up and still see where we are. That's not what you do, is it? But um, we won't have those, so you have to listen very carefully uh, to the things that I'm going to be saying. Uh, but uh, that's the reason for that. We had some uh, power surges here at the building on Friday. In fact, uh, it was almost as if the building was temporarily haunted. All the lights were flashing on and off, and uh, I wonder if it didn't do something to the computer. But we'll check on that, but uh, that's the reason for uh, us going low-tech for a few minutes this morning. Good to see you this morning. Uh, Appreciate the, the songs Jeremiah led, even though he had to go low-tech and switch to that suddenly. Uh, appreciate him. And uh, there are some thoughts that he presented in those songs that I think will be helpful to us as we uh, pursue this topic for a few minutes this morning. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. So something awesome happens here. The people have just come back from Persian captivity, and they've had to rebuild. Everything has to be rebuilt. Their homes have to be rebuilt. The temple has to be rebuilt. And recently, because Nehemiah has come, the walls of the city of Jerusalem have been rebuilt. So there is all this rebuilding and reconstruction going on, but there is something missing. Because you can rebuild all the outward structures and you can get everything just the way you want it. But until the, the people themselves, the hearts of the people, the spirits of the people are sort of restored to God, something is missing. The inner life of the people needs to be reconnected to God. Now, Ezra has done some of that work in the book of Ezra as he has tried to get rid of some of the problems that have cropped up. And yet here, it seems to me that after all the completion of this, the people are ready to connect to God again. We might call it a revival, where the people are ready to read and listen to the law again, to worship God again, and they are ready for someone to read to them and then sit and listen all morning and just worship and honor God. I want you to think about that idea of revival with me this morning. Because it seems to me that we just go through cycles as people where we tend to be really hot one minute and cold the next. Or we go through a season of life where we're very passionate and excited, and then we go through a season of life where we sort of drift from the things that matter most. And sometimes we might have developed habits that keep us, for example, coming to church, and yet we know that the heart's not really committed. We're not as enthusiastic as we once were. Once were. We're not excited. And so we need that sense of revival. And Scripture very often talks about that, especially in the Psalms, that we need God to work on us to revive us again, just like we've sung. And so what I want to think about for a few minutes this morning is how you do that. How do you start a revival? And some of the things that are the components of a revival, because I'll just be very open about my goal, that's what I want to happen here at Fairview. I want us to have a revival, a sense of a renewed interest, a renewed passion, a renewed excitement for the things of God, especially 
as we enter a new year and we think about where we are, where we are in relation to our lives, you know, another year of our lives has passed. And as we look at the, the new year that's just like a blank canvas before us, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? I want us to think about what would change if we were excited afresh about the things of God. And I want us to think about how these people show us what that looks like. So first of all, I'll just put this first one on the board. <laughs> Revival requires a passion to do what's right. So this whole scene begins after the wall is finished and the people have gone back home. Look at the end of chapter 7, verse 73 of chapter 7. It says, when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. So they've kind of retreated from the city of Jerusalem, gone to where everybody lives. Some, of course, live in Jerusalem, but some live in other places. But then in chapter 8 and verse 1, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. So they gather as one man. And I think that phrase, as one man, talks about a unity of passion and purpose. We are all together because we all have the same goal. We all want to do the same thing. Everybody wanted this. And it's clear what they wanted. Because it says, verse, two, verse 1, they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. I, I don't know about your experience. I've had this interesting experience since my kids have been in school. Sometimes when there is an assembly called, they'll have something like a concert. And they'll say, come hear your kids sing in this concert. And then you get there and your kid is not singing. Instead, you're having a PTA meeting. They've tricked you. They said you were coming to hear you, but you have to stay in this PTA meeting and vote for all these things, and then eventually they'll let you hear your kid, okay? That's not what this is. This is not a bait and switch. Okay, yeah, we, we thought we were going to come and get something, have something exciting or fun, but instead we got to listen to the law for four hours? Ah, uh, No, instead they know what they're getting. It's exactly what's advertised. We want Ezra, Ezra, you bring the book of the law. That's why we're gathering here. So verse 2. Verse 2, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So everybody who can understand, that is a certain age of a of child, I think is what he's mentioning there. He, they gather together and they read the law and they listen from morning to noon. And everybody's listening, they ask for it, and they got it. So when I describe that, that sensation, what I read in those verses, I have to use the word passion because these people are interested enough that their ears are consistently attentive to the book of the law. Now, I know sometimes we'll, we'll start a reading plan. We want to read through all the way through the Bible, right? And uh, those reading plans go really well until they get to the book of the law. Okay, the book of the law of Leviticus. I don't know if that's specifically what he's referring to here. But when we read through the law, even when we're sitting here looking at it, sometimes it's hard to get through. These people are standing and listening for hours. And their ears were attentive to the law. Because there's some kind of interest there. There is a passion there. But I especially want to tell you what happens in these verses is not accidental. They don't just happen to stumble into the water gate. Ezra happens to have the law, and they say, oh, let's just stand and listen. Instead, it was something that was deliberately pursued. There was a passion. There was an interest there. These people had to make time and effort to do this. I think sometimes we have convinced ourselves that we are the only people in the history of the world who are busy. 
and we look back on past generations and we say, well, of course they went to gospel meetings and things. They didn't have anything else to do. But remember, in an agrarian society like this, if you're a farmer, if you own cattle, you are constantly busy. You always have things to do. There's never a good time to leave everything and go into Jerusalem to hear the law. This is something that is a priority for them. And they are doing it because they have a passion to do what's right. So if we're going to start a revival, it starts here. It starts with the desire, the passion. And that passion will translate into time and effort. It must, or else it's not going to go anywhere. The other part of it is it's not just a personal passion, a one person. You know, you have a lot of times throughout the, the Old Testament where one person will have a passion to do what's right. Usually it's a prophet. And yet that one person's passion doesn't translate into a revival for the people, does it? Think about Jeremiah, who is incredibly passionate and does so much preaching and caring and tries to reach out to the people, and yet nobody really responds to Jeremiah. Only very few are with him. It's not a revival because a revival requires more than one. It requires a group that is together committed to doing what's right. So it can't be revival if people, plural, don't have that passion. So the question then becomes, well, what got these people into this frame of mind? What led them here? And I believe that it is all of the circumstances that have led up to this moment that have changed the hearts of the people. They have been in captivity. Now they have seen their nation as rubble. And they have seen God come back and bring them back and fulfill his promises and be good to them and bless them and help them rebuild. And there is the humility that says, I don't want that to happen again. I have messed up before. We have messed up before. We don't want that captivity to happen again. There is also a gratitude that says, look at all God has done for us. The least we could do is discover what he wants us to do now. But there is a passion that springs from those circumstances. And so it is with us. We need a passion to say, I don't want to continue living the way I've lived. I don't want the results that I've gotten in the past. I want something to change because I want to do what's right. And I know God deserves my full attention. That's going to translate into time and energy. So you want to start a revival. First, start with a passion to do what's right. All right, what else does revival require? We're also going to see here revival requires a renewed attention to Scripture. We've got to look again at what God says. Let's read here beginning in verse 2. Nehemiah 8 and verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on the left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. 
All right. I'm not going to read that again with all the names. Okay. If you need to read the names again, you can do it yourself. But I want you to see what's going on. They are focused again on Scripture. It says in verse 3, their ears were attentive to the book of the law. They make Ezra a platform for this reason, which makes me think there was some planning that went into this. Okay, they made a platform so that he could stand above and everybody could see and everybody could hear as he's reading from the book of the law. By the way, there is also this added thing. You know, when, when somebody is standing up here and you see them probably with the scrolls on which the law was written, you know that they're not making it up. You can see that's coming from the book. And there is a power in that to say this is the word of Jehovah God. And so they want to listen to God. When he opens the book of the law, did you notice what happened? All the people stand up, verse 5. They stand up as a sign of honor for the word of God. You know, there are some denominations that to this day have this practice. When the word of God is opened, everyone in the church building will rise as a sign of respect for the word of God. It is a, a practice that shows this is not ordinary language. Verse 6, so, verse 6, Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Do you notice how much is described of how, what they're doing with their bodies? So they're standing up, then they're lifting up their hands, blessing Jehovah God, and then they're bowing their heads with their faces to the ground, okay? All of these, you can tell, are signs that we respect God and we want to listen to God's word. Okay, they're not really in a worship phase here. They're thankful to God, but they're ready to listen. And all their bodily postures demonstrate the respect they have for the word of God. And they're ready to hear from God. So everything that follows of what we're going to read and study this morning is a product of that attitude. This is God's word, and I want to hear it. I want to obey it. So... As Ezra reads from the book of the law, as he's on this platform, there are people around. They are described as Levites. There are people throughout the crowd who are there to help explain what is said. So verse 8 talks about that. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. I don't think that what's happening here is that they're translating. I don't think that's the idea. I think the people could understand, but... Just like when any time the, the word of God is read, there is what the word of God says, and then there is the idea of, okay, what does that mean? How do I understand that? And then what, what is that going to mean for me? I don't live in the same context in which this was written. What, what does it mean for us now? So there are people there who are helping them understand, here now is what you need to do to live by what you've heard. So it is the idea of explaining the meaning and then explaining the application. By the way, that's what preaching is. You read the word of God and you explain what it means and you talk about what we're supposed to do now. That's what preaching is. So around noon, so from the, the beginning of the morning to noon, the word of the law is read. And around noon, Ezra begins to dismiss the crowds. But I want you to notice what happens as he dismisses the crowds. Uh, verse 9, and Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught, all the, who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. 
And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So as the words of the law are read, the people are crying. Now, it's not really clear why. I think it's probably one of two reasons, at least in my surmising. Either we're talking about that same spirit that says we're sad because of how far Israel has fallen. You know, there are people who when they see the temple and they remember the earlier temple, they weep because this is nothing like what used to be here. Okay, Or it's possible that in hearing the law, they feel guilty about what they're hearing and how they know we have not lived up to this and uh, so we're not, we're not right with God. But Nehemiah and Ezra say, don't cry. Don't grieve. This is not a time for grief. This is a time for rejoicing. And so he tells them, you go and rejoice. You eat good things. This is a day of joy. Part of that is about this time of year. And the, fe- the feast that we're going to talk about in a minute, the Feast of Tabernacles, is supposed to be a feast of joy. It's a harvest time. It's not a time to, to weep and cry. But... Also, part of this is about God is doing something good for you. So rejoice in that, celebrate that, be happy. The joy of the Lord is your strength. What God is giving you is joy, and that will make you strong. All right, so let me take a minute and just process this idea of renewed attention to Scripture. So I don't think that Scripture ever faded out of the Jewish consciousness. I don't think they ever forgot what God said in the law. But it's one thing to know generally what's in Scripture, and it's another thing to actually hear the words again. They are able to hear God's words directly, read to them, explained to them, and that encounter has a power to it. When we look face-to-face with what God says and we think about, how am I doing compared to that? What have I been doing? What do I need to do? Scripture is only as alive to us as we consider it to be. Very many people in our world have no interest in what God's word says to them or about them. Yet, if we want to start a revival, we've got to remember that God is speaking to us through his word, to us directly about our situations and what we need to do and to change. And until we get there... All the passion to do right is not really directed. It doesn't go anywhere because it's not guided by God's will for us. And so these people have to remember and learn what God wants. It is no coincidence that some of the great revivals in Judah's history start with going back to Scripture. Do you remember when Josiah finds the book of the law in the temple? And they read the book of the law and they say, oh, wow, we are in trouble because we have not been following this. And suddenly Josiah starts changing everything. It is a great revival. It starts with scripture. It's no coincidence that great historical movements to restore the church or to go back to the beginning or to follow scripture again. I mean, where do they begin? They begin by saying, let's look again. Let's go back to the Bible. Let's just follow scripture. Because when we have a renewed attention to Scripture, it harnesses our energy and directs it toward what God has actually said. So, to start a revival, we have to do more than say nice things about the Bible. We have to pay attention to it again. We have to listen to it and let it direct our lives. It needs to be a part of how we think and how we treat other people. That's how we start a revival. Third thing, 
to start a revival, you need a willingness to change. Look at verse 13 with me. Verse 13. On the second day, so we're back again. Okay, so the first day we did all that scripture reading, we had the rejoicing. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all, the towns, in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof, and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate and the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So the funny thing about when you renew attention on Scripture is that when you really start paying attention, you start to notice things that maybe you're not doing. And there start to be these questions that come up like, why, why don't we do that? So we're reading about this feast um, is it that now? Isn't this the time when we should be celebrating the Feast of Booths? By the way, booths is really the idea of a tent. It's the Feast of Tabernacles, which is also a word for tent, where they would live in tents to, to symbolize the living in tents that they did going through the wilderness and the 40 years of wilderness wandering. So it is a festival that God had arranged and directed so that they would remember that time and so that they would rejoice at what God had done for them in bringing them into the land. So... I just love this scene. It's as if they say, hey, wait a minute. It's time to do this. We're supposed to do this. Let's do this. And they do. And so they all start to live in tents, some of them on their roofs of their houses, because that's a a place to do that. And did you notice what the comment was? They had not done this since the days of Joshua, which was several centuries earlier. Now, they had kept the Feast of Tabernacles. We actually see a record of that in Ezra not too long earlier, but evidently they had not kept it by actually living in tents. They kept the sacrifices and done some of those things, but not in the full-fledged way that the law prescribed. Not until this reading, this revival. Six or seven centuries, we're talking, of history that is undone in this one moment where the people say, aha, and they're ready to change. That keeps going, by the way. Look in chapter 9 and verse 1. Chapter 9 and verse 1, now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. So 24th day now, did you notice that? 24th day, the people are still gathered. The feast is over but they're still gathered and they want to hear more from God. So again, they're reading, they're studying, but now they're also confessing. It says in verse two, they separated themselves from foreigners. They confessed their sins. They spent three hours confessing their sins. Could you do that? It's a long time to confess sin. But they had a lot to say. I wonder if we think we have that much to say in terms of confessing our own sins. Here is what I want you to see here. There is a power 
that revival gives us to change things and to change people. But we have to be willing to change. We're talking about centuries of practice that change in a single day. We're talking about a lifetime of associating with foreigners that is eliminated or changed, altered in one day. One of the beautiful things about revival is that it gives us this desire to do what's right and to make permanent changes when the iron is hot. Sometimes it feels like there are some things that are just too big a problem. You know, that's just, that's way too big a problem for me. It's above my pay grade. Do you know there there are things like that that can change in a moment when people's heart is right? Sometimes it feels like there are things that are, that's just the way they are. That'll never change. Surely, some of the Jews thought that. You know, that's just the way things are. We just don't keep that feast anymore. That's just not what we do. And in a moment, when the people's heart is right, that can change. I said earlier, people seem to go in cycles. There are times when we're interested in changing and the iron is hot. And then there are times where We don't want to reconsider. We don't want to change. We want to defend what we're doing. And it is vital if we're going to have revival and that spirit that God is at work among us that we be willing at any moment to change, to be right with God, a willingness to change. I know that sometimes in some circles, the idea of change just has a bad reputation because change means some kind of progressiveness, you know, doing new things to follow and accommodate to the world. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not what these people are doing. They're changing because they found they're not right and they're not following God's word the way they should. That kind of change is always on the table. There is never a point where we can say, no, I don't ever need to change. If we're going to have revival, we're going to have to be willing to take that passion, that interest in the word of God, and make it concrete by being willing to change and become different. The last thing I want to say is that revival is going to require confession and humility. You see that in some of what we've read already. Nehemiah 9 and verse 2 and 3. Nehemiah 9 and verse 2. The Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers. So not only do they have things that they've done, but they also are in the line of a long line of people who have done wrong and they have kind of suffered for it. They've been punished for it. But they're confessing, we also have our hand involved in this. And then there is this beautiful prayer. Don't worry, we don't have anywhere near the time we need to to dissect it. It really is from chapter 9 and chapter 10. It's not really clear who is saying the prayer. It's kind of attributed to the Levites, uh, beginning in verse uh, 5 there. But in Nehemiah 9 and verse 6, look at this. I just want to read a couple of little excerpts here. Nehemiah 9 and verse 6, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord. So all that this that you have done, and then verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck. So uh, drop down to verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets. Verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. 
So what the people decide to do is they make a covenant. Look in chapter 10, down in verse 29, chapter 10 and verse 29. He says, we join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or on a holy day. We will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. And they begin to say, these are the things we will do. And they make a covenant with God. They renew the covenant. Confession. You see it throughout this prayer. We have done wrong and wrong and wrong, and we have suffered as a result. And we ask for your help and your mercy, but we know we deserve what we've gotten. And then there is, from now forward, we will be humble servants of you. Here is why this is important. Here is why confession is important. Please hear me. Confession is important because it means we're not justifying ourselves anymore. We're not trying to tell God, no, this is fine. Okay, everything is fine. We did right. Instead, it's we did wrong. We want to do better. We want to do more. We know we're not enough. We want a new path. We want to follow you freshly. So revival is not about being better than anybody else. It is about acknowledging we haven't done right, asking for mercy, and pledging we will fight this. We will do better. So I say all this to say we need a revival. We do. We need renewed power and strength from God. And the way we are going to accomplish that is as we have a passion to do what's right as a congregation, as we have a renewed attention to Scripture as a congregation, to, to read and to study and to think about what does this mean for me, that we have a willingness to change even when things are deeply entrenched in us or perhaps there are long-term practices we've had personally or we've had as a church that we have confession and humility and say, this is not about me justifying what I do. It is instead about following God. And I particularly want to say, I believe that we need that renewed attention to Scripture in our group that we be focused on daily, weekly, throughout this coming year, how we are reading and studying and thinking about God's Word. And I also believe we need that willingness to change that things aren't right just because we do them in a certain way. And I want to say, just as sort of a side note on that, sometimes people are going to ask us questions, especially our young people, about why we do what we do. You know, there are questions that say they can be taken as a threat. You know, that's a challenge. But they can also be taken as a reconsideration, a reexamination. Why do we do what we do? What is the biblical basis for what we say, what we practice? Those are things that are good. We should never say, no, we're unwilling to reconsider that, unwilling to change that. If we are going to follow God, we always have to be willing to re-examine and to change when we discover that we are wrong. But when we're done with this scene, I hope that it impresses you the way it impresses me. We see a people who are deeply connected to God where they were not before. We see a freshness and a vibrance to their community. They are ready to serve. That's what I want God to do for us here. Would you pray with me about that? Oh God, our Father, 
We thank you for this good morning that we could study together. We're thankful for the example you've recorded and preserved for us of your people reconnecting with you and the heart of devotion and humility and confession that they've demonstrated for us. Father, I pray that you will revive us. Give us that passion to serve you again, to focus on your word, to show us where we need to change and help us to be willing to change. And Father, as we pledge anew to serve you in this coming year, I pray that you'll bless our efforts and work through us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for your attention. We'll be dismissed for our classes.